Chapter Fourteen of Green Mantle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Missy, Guangzhou, China. Green Mantle by John Buchan. Chapter Fourteen, The Lady of the Mantilla. Since that first night, I had never clapped eyes on Sandy. He had gone clean out of the world, and Blankiron and I waited anxiously for a word of news. Our own business was in good trim, for we were presently going east towards Mesopotamia, but unless we learned more about Greenmantle, our journey would be a grotesque failure. And learn about Greenmantle we could not, for nobody by word or deed suggested his existence, and it was impossible, of course, for us to ask questions. Our only hope was Sandy, for what we wanted to know was the Prophet's whereabouts and his plans. I suggested to Blankiron that we might do more to cultivate Frau von Einem, but he shut his jaw like a rat-trap. "'There's nothing doing for us in that quarter,' he said. "'That's the most dangerous woman on earth. And if she got any kind of notion that we were wise about her pet schemes, I reckon you and I would very soon be in the Bosphorus.' Well, this was all very well, but what was going to happen if the two of us were bundled off to Baghdad with instructions to wash away the British? Our time was getting pretty short and I doubted if we could spin out more than three days more in Constantinople. I felt just as if I had felt with Stum that last night when I was about to be packed off to Cairo and saw no way of avoiding it. Even Blankiron was getting anxious. He played patience incessantly and was disinclined to talk. I tried to find out something from the servants, but they either knew nothing or wouldn't speak. The former, I think. I kept my eyes lifting, too, as I walked about the streets, but there was no sign anywhere of the skin coats or the weird stringed instruments. The whole company of the rosy hours seemed to have melted into the air, and I began to wonder if they had ever existed. Anxiety made me restless, and restlessness made me want exercise. It was no good walking about the city. The weather had become foul again, and I was sick of the smells and the squalor and the flea-bitten crowds. So Blankiron and I got horses, Turkish cavalry mounts with heads like trees, and went out through the suburbs into the open country. It was a grey, drizzling afternoon, with the beginnings of a sea-fog which hid the Asiatic shores of the straits. It wasn't easy to find open ground for a gallop, for there were endless small patches of cultivation and the gardens of country houses. We kept on the high land above the sea, and when we reached a bit of downland came on squads of Turkish soldiers digging trenches. Whenever we let the horses go, we had to pull up sharp for a digging party or a stretch of barbed wire. Coils of the beastly thing were lying loose everywhere, and Blankiron nearly took a nasty toss over one. Then we were always being stopped by sentries and having to show our passes. Still, the ride did us good and shook up our livers, and by the time we turned for home I was feeling more like a white man. We jogged back in the short winter twilight, past the wooded grounds of white villas, held up every few minutes by transport wagons and companies of soldiers. The rain had come on in real earnest, and it was two very bedraggled horsemen that crawled along the muddy lanes. As we passed one villa, shut in by a high white wall, a pleasant smell of wood smoke was wafted towards us, which made me sick for the burning veld. My ear, too, caught the twanging of a zither, which somehow reminded me of the afternoon in Caprassa's garden-house. I pulled up and proposed to investigate, but Blankiron very testily declined. "'Zithers are as common here as fleas,' he said. "'You don't want to be fossicking around somebody's stables and find a horse-boy entertaining his friends.' They don't like visitors in this country, and you'll be asking for trouble if you go inside those walls. I guess it's some old buzzard's harem. 
Buzzard was his own private peculiar name for the Turk, for he said he had had as a boy a natural history book with a picture of a bird called the Turkey Buzzard, and couldn't get out of the habit of applying it to the Ottoman people. I wasn't convinced, so I tried to mark down the place. It seemed to be about three miles out from the city, at the end of a steep lane on the inland side of the hill coming from the Bosphorus. I fancied somebody of distinction lived there, for a little farther on we met a big empty motor-car snorting its way up, and I had a notion that the car belonged to the walled villa. Next day Blenkiron was in grievous trouble with his dyspepsia. About midday he was compelled to lie down, and having nothing better to do I had out the horses again and took Peter with me. It was funny to see Peter in a Turkish army saddle, riding with the long Boer stirrup and the slouch of the backveld. That afternoon was unfortunate from the start. It was not the mist and drizzle of the day before, but a stiff northern gale which blew sheets of rain in our faces and numbed our bridle hands. We took the same road, but pushed west of the trench-digging parties and got to a shallow valley with a white village among the cypresses. Beyond that there was a very respectable road which brought us to the top of a crest that in clear weather must have given a fine prospect. Then we turned our horses, and I shaped our course so as to strike the top of the long lane that abutted on the down. I wanted to investigate the white villa. But we hadn't gone far on our road back before we got into trouble. It arose out of a sheepdog, a yellow mongrel brute that came at us like a thunderbolt. It took a special fancy to Peter, and bit savagely at his horse's heels, and sent it capering off the road. I should have warned him, but I did not realize what was happening till too late. For Peter, being accustomed to mongrels and kaffir crawls, took a summary way with the pest. Since it despised his whip, he out with his pistol and put a bullet through its head. The echoes of the shot had scarcely died away when the row began. A big fellow appeared, running towards us, shouting wildly. I guessed he was the dog's owner, and proposed to pay no attention, but his cry summoned two other fellows, soldiers by the look of them, who closed in on us, unslinging their rifles as they ran. My first idea was to show them our heels, but I had no desire to be shot in the back, and they looked like men who wouldn't stop short of shooting. So he slowed down and faced them. They made as savage-looking a trio as you would want to avoid. The shepherd looked as if he had been dug up, a dirty ruffian with matted hair and a beard like a bird's nest. The two soldiers stood staring with sullen faces, fingering their guns, while the other chap raved and stormed and kept pointing at Peter, whose mild eyes stared unwinkingly at his assailant. The mischief was that neither of us had a word of Turkish. I tried German, but it had no effect. We sat looking at them, and they stood storming at us, and it was fast getting dark. Once I turned my horse round as if to proceed, and the two soldiers jumped in front of me. They jabbered among themselves, and then one said very slowly, He want pounds, and he held up five fingers. They evidently saw by the cut of our jib that we weren't Germans. I'll be hanged if he gets a penny, I said angrily, and the conversation languished. The situation was getting serious, so I spoke a word to Peter. The soldiers had their rifles loose in their hands, and before they could lift them we had the pair covered with our pistols. If you move, I said, you are dead. They understood that all right, and stood stock still, while the shepherd stopped his raving and took to muttering like a gramophone when the record is finished. "'Drop your guns,' I said sharply. "'Quick, or we shoot!' The tone, if not the words, conveyed by meaning. Still staring at us, they let the rifles slide to the ground. The next second we had forced our horses on the top of them, and the three were off like rabbits. I sent a shot over their heads to encourage them. Peter dismounted and tossed the guns into a bit of scrub where they would take some finding. This hold-up had wasted time. 
By now it was getting very dark, and we hadn't ridden a mile before it was black night. It was an annoying predicament, for I had completely lost my bearings, and at the best I had only a foggy notion of the lie of the land. The best plan seemed to be to try and get to the top of a rise, in the hope of seeing the lights of the city, but all the countryside was so pockety that it was hard to strike the right kind of rise. We had to trust to Peter's instinct. I asked him where our line lay, and he sat very still for a minute sniffing the air. Then he pointed the direction. It wasn't what I would have taken myself, but on a point like that he was pretty near infallible. Presently we came to a long slope, which cheered me, but at the top there was no light visible anywhere, only a black void like the inside of a shell. As I stared into the gloom, it seemed to me that there were patches of deeper darkness that might be woods. "'There is a house half left in front of us,' said Peter. I peered till my eyes ached and saw nothing. "'Well, for heaven's sake, guide me to it,' I said, and with Peter in front we set off down the hill. It was a wild journey, for darkness clung as close to us as a vest. Twice we stepped into patches of bog, and once my horse saved himself by a hair from going head forward into a gravel pit. We got tangled up in strands of wire and often found ourselves rubbing our noses against tree trunks. Several times I had to get down and make a gap in barricades of loose stones. But after a ridiculous amount of slipping and stumbling, we finally struck what seemed the level of the road, and a piece of special darkness in front which turned out to be a high wall. I argued that all mortal walls had doors, so we set to groping along it and presently found a gap. There was an old iron gate on broken hinges, which we easily pushed open, and found ourselves on a black path to some house. It was clearly disused, for masses of rotting leaves covered it, and by the feel of it underfoot it was grass-grown. We dismounted now, leading our horses, and after about fifty yards the path ceased and came out on a well-made carriage drive. So at least we guessed, for the place was as black as pitch. Evidently the house couldn't be far off, but in which direction I hadn't a notion. Now, I didn't want to be paying calls on any Turk at that time of day. Our job was to find where the road opened into the lane, for after that our way to Constantinople was clear. One side the lane lay, and the other the house, and it didn't seem wise to take the risk of tramping up with horses to the front door. So I told Peter to wait for me at the end of the back road while I would prospect a bit. I turned to the right, my intention being, if I saw the light of a house to return, and with Peter take the other direction. I walked like a blind man in that nether pit of darkness. The road seemed well kept, and the soft wet gravel muffled the sounds of my feet. Great trees overhung it, and several times I wandered into dripping bushes. And then I stopped short in my tracks, for I heard the sound of whistling. It was quite close, about ten yards away, and the strange thing was that it was a tune I knew, about the last tune you would expect to hear in this part of the world. It was the Scots air. Caw the O's to the nose, which was a favorite of my father's. The whistler must have felt my presence, for the air suddenly stopped in the middle of a bar. An unbounded curiosity seized me to know who the fellow could be, so I started in and finished it myself. There was silence for a second, and then the unknown began again and stopped. Once more I chipped in and finished it. Then it seemed to me that he was coming nearer. The air in that dank tunnel was very still, and I thought I heard a light foot. I think I took a step backward. Suddenly there was a flash of an electric torch from a yard off, so quick that I could see nothing of the man who held it. Then a low voice spoke out of the darkness. 
a voice I knew well, and following it a hand was laid on my arm. "'What the devil are you doing here, Dick?' it said, and there was something like consternation in the tone. I told him in a hectic se sentence, for I was beginning to feel badly rattled myself. "'You've never been in greater danger in your life,' said the voice. "'Great God, man, what brought you wandering here to-day of all days?' You can imagine that I was pretty scared, for Sandy was the last man to put a case too high. And the next second I felt worse, for he clutched my arm and dragged me in a bound to the side of the road. I could see nothing, but I felt that his head was screwed round and mine followed suit. And there, a dozen yards off, were the acetylene lights of a big motor car. It came along very slowly, purring like a great cat, while we pressed into the bushes. The headlights seemed to spread a fan far to either side, showing the full width of the drive and its borders, and about half the height of the overarching trees. There was a figure in uniform sitting beside the chauffeur, whom I saw dimly in the reflex glow, but the body of the car was dark. It crept towards us, passed, and my mind was just getting easy again when it stopped. A switch was snapped within, and the limousine was brightly lit up. Inside I saw a woman's figure. The servant had got out and opened the door, and a voice came from within. A clear, soft voice, speaking in some tongue I didn't understand. Sandy had started forward at the sound of it, and I followed him. It would never do for me to be caught skulking in the bushes. I was so dazzled by the suddenness of the glare that at first I blinked and saw nothing. Then my eyes cleared, and I found myself looking at the inside of a car upholstered in some soft dove-colored fabric and beautifully finished off in ivory and silver. The woman who sat in it had a mantilla of black lace over her head and shoulders, and with one slender jeweled hand she kept its fold over the greater part of her face. I saw only a pair of pale gray-blue eyes, these and the slim fingers. I remember that Sandy was standing very upright with his hands on his hips, by no means like a servant in the presence of his mistress. He was a fine figure of a man at all times, but in those wild clothes, with his head thrown back and his dark brows drawn below his skull-cap, he looked like some savage king out of an older world. He was speaking Turkish, and glancing at me now and then as if angry and perplexed. I took the hint that he was not supposed to know that any other tongue, and that he was asking who the devil I might be. Then they both looked at me, Sandy with the slow, unwinking stare of the gypsy, the lady with those curious, beautiful, pale eyes. They ran over my clothes, my brand-new riding-breeches, my splashed boots, my wide-brimmed hat. I took off the last and made my best bow. "'Madam,' I said, "'I have to ask pardon for trespassing in your garden. The fact is, I and my servant—he's down the road with the horses, and I guess you noticed him. The two of us went for a ride this afternoon and got good and well lost.' We came in by your back gate, and I was prospecting for your front door to find someone to direct us, when I bumped into this brigand chief who didn't understand my talk. I'm American, and I'm here on a big government proposition. I hate to trouble you, but if you'd send a man to show us how to strike the city, I'd be very much in your debt. Her eyes never left my face. Will you come into the car, she said in English. At the house I will give you a servant to direct you. She drew in the skirts of her fur cloak to make room for me, and in my muddy boots and sopping clothes I took the seat she pointed out. She said a word in Turkish to Sandy, switched off the light, and the car moved on. Women had never come much in my way, and I knew about as much of their ways as I knew about the Chinese language. All my life I had lived with men only, and rather a rough crowd at that. 
When I had made my pile and came home, I looked to see a little society, but I had first the business of the black stone on my hands and then the war, so my education languished. I had never been in a motor-car with a lady before, and I felt like a fish on a dry sandbank. The soft cushions and the subtle scents filled me with acute uneasiness. I wasn't thinking now about Sandy's grave words or about Blank Iron's warning or about my job and the part this woman must play in it. I was thinking only that I felt mortally shy. The darkness made it worse. I was sure that my companion was looking at me all the time and laughing at me for a clown. The car stopped, and a tall servant opened the door. The lady was over the threshold before I was at the step. I followed her heavily, the wet squelching from my field boots. At that moment I noticed she was very tall. She led me through a long corridor to a room where two pillars held lamps in the shape of torches. The place was dark but for their glow, and it was as warm as a hothouse from invisible stoves. I felt soft carpets underfoot, and on the walls hung some tapestry or rug of an amazingly intricate geometrical pattern, but with every strand as rich as jewels. There, between the pillars, she turned and faced me. Her furs were thrown back, and the black mantilla had slipped down to her shoulders. "'I have heard of you,' she said. "'You are called Richard Hanau, the American. Why have you come to this land?' "'To have a share in the campaign,' I said. "'I'm an engineer, and I thought I could help out with some business like Mesopotamia.' "'You are on Germany's side?' she asked. "'Why, yes,' I replied. "'We Americans are supposed to be neutrals, "'and that means we're free to choose any side we fancy. "'I'm for the Kaiser.' "'Her cool eyes searched me, but not in suspicion. "'I could see she wasn't troubling with the question "'whether I was speaking the truth. "'She was sizing me up as a man.' I cannot describe that calm, appraising look. There was no sex in it, nothing even of that implicit sympathy with which one human being explores the existence of another. I was a chattel, a thing infinitely removed from intimacy. Even so, I have myself looked at a horse which I thought of buying, scanning his shoulders and hocks and paces. Even so must the old lords of Constantinople have looked at the slaves which the chances of war brought to their markets assessing their usefulness for some task or other with no thought of the humanity common to purchased and purchaser. And yet, not quite. This woman's eyes were weighing me, not for any special duty, but for my essential qualities. I felt that I was under the scrutiny of one who was a connoisseur in human nature. I see I have written that I knew nothing about women, but every man has in his bones a consciousness of sex. I was shy and perturbed, but horribly fascinated. This slim woman, poised exquisitely like some statue between the pillared lights, with her fair cloud of hair, her long, delicate face, and her pale, bright eyes, had the glamour of a wild dream. I hated her instinctively, hated her intensely, but I longed to arouse her interest. To be valued coldly by those eyes was an offence to my manhood, and I felt antagonism rising within me. I'm a strong fellow, well set up, and rather above the average height, and my irritation stiffened me from heel to crown. I flung my head back and gave her cool glance for cool glance, pride against pride. Once, I remember, a doctor on board ship who dabbled in hypnotism told me that I was the most unsympathetic person he had ever struck. He said I was about as good a mesmeric subject as Table Mountain. Suddenly I began to realize that this woman was trying to cast some spell over me. The eyes grew large and luminous, and I was conscious for just an instant of some will battling to subject mine. 
I was aware, too, in the same moment, of a strange scent which recalled that wild hour in Caprasso's garden-house. It passed quickly, and for a second her eyes drooped. I seemed to read in them failure, and yet a kind of satisfaction, too, as if they had found more in me than they expected. "'What life have you led?' the soft voice was saying. I was able to answer quite naturally, rather to my surprise. I have been a mining engineer up and down the world. You have faced danger many times? I have faced danger. You have fought with men in battles? I have fought in battles. Her bosom rose and fell in a kind of sigh. A smile, a very beautiful thing, flitted over her face. She gave me her hand. The horses are at the door now, she said, and your servant is with them. One of my people will guide you to the city. She turned away and passed out of the circle of light into the darkness beyond. Peter and I jogged home in the rain with one of Sandy's skin-clad companions loping at our side. We did not speak a word, for my thoughts were running like hounds on the track of the past hours. I had seen the mysterious Hilda von Einem, and had spoken to her and had held her hand. She had insulted me with the subtlest of insults, and yet I was not angry. Suddenly the game I was playing became invested with a tremendous solemnity. My old antagonists, Stumm and Rasta and the whole German Empire, seemed to shrink into the background, leaving only the slim woman with her inscrutable smile and devouring eyes. Mad and bad, Blankiron had called her, but principally bad. I did not think they were the proper terms, for they belonged to the narrow world of our common experience. This was something beyond and above it, as a cyclone or an earthquake is outside the decent routine of nature. Mad and bad she might be, but she was also great. Before we arrived our guide had plucked my knee and spoken some words which he had obviously got by heart. The master says, ran the message, expect him at midnight. End of chapter 14